HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording on Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. And the theme of this is the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project. So let's go around the room and introduce our guests. Let's start with Chris. Good afternoon. Chris Weld, founder of Berkshire Mountain Distillers in glorious Sheffield, Massachusetts. Glorious. And Michael. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Kowalski. I'm the National Director of Sales and Hospitality for Berkshire Mountain Distillers, and I'm just a bit north of Chris in Dalton, Massachusetts. <laughs> I love these local towns. And Nick. Hi, this is Nick Smith, um, currently head brewer at Long Trail Brewing Company, and uh, that brewery is in Bridgewater Corners, Vermont. All right, so we got our little parts in New England and the Hudson Valley here today. Um, I'm, we're usually down in, in New York, New York City, um, but it's great to have everybody on. So, Chris, uh, uh, last year you were on, and we talked about this project, the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project, and it was really great. I know we had Jack Zabby and uh, someone else on. Just, just give us a recap for our, our new listeners, what the project is, and, and and how you got it started. I mean, we always make whiskey out of beer, don't we? Uh we. Yeah, we basically distillers beer is what we make when we mash in. So uh, it's a confusing thought for most people, but essentially that's what we do when we make whiskey. We take a beer and turn it into whiskey. 
Um, you know, the project, I guess the origins of it date back probably 10 or 12 years ago. And I met with Jim Cook from Sam Adams and talked him into sending us a few of his beers that we distilled. Learned a lot about kind of uh, steam flow and condensation traps and stuff when we distilled 38 degree cold beer. But came up with a couple really nice projects. And I've always been a huge craft, craft beer fan. Um, and so that collaboration led to an idea of doing a much grander project that we uh, dubbed the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project. And the uh, we had we sort of herding chickens, as I said before, but we ended up with 12 breweries um, that we received beer from. And this is basically bottle-ready beer that then got distilled. And the plan was to barrel age it for about four years. Uh, we tend to kind of at three years, our whiskeys around here really turn, turn and hit the sweet spot. So we like at least four years and then COVID hit and we waited another year. So all these whiskeys are five years. And um, I guess it was Sam Adams and Jackson uh, Berkshire Brewing Company last time. And we have since released the Smutty Nose and Oma Gangs and Captain Lawrence. And now this is the final release that we're talking about, which is the Long Trail one, one from Chatham Brewing and also another one from Kudos. So we have uh, actually put to market 12 new whiskeys in about 12 months. Wow. So so how did it go over? I mean, were there different quantities? You know, were, were they only available at your distillery? Were there any uh, sold in retail stores? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky, you know, the distribution network is sometimes difficult to navigate. Um, but back to the first question, there were different quantities and different breweries obviously have different capacities. And uh, so for instance, the local small um, Big Elm and Chatham Brewing are much smaller. So the quantities of beer we got in and hence the volume of whiskey we produced was much smaller. And then um, the other ones all sort of had fairly similar amounts um, and it's it's just super. It's a really crazy project for me, uh, just to see the genetics of the beer kind of follow through into the distillate and, and hold up even through the aging process. So um, they are uh, we're we're getting every beer that we've distilled into a whiskey into its home state. Sometimes that's a little bit more work than other times, um, and all of them have been available at the shop at the distillery as well. Wow, that's a great intro, Chris. Let's go to Michael. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about you. Um, you're involved in sales, and uh, let's hear about Michael Kowalski. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've known about Chris and his distillery literally since its inception. Uh, my father was an instructor at the Culinary Institute, and he always had his ears to the ground about new and cool things that were happening in the food and beverage world in the area. So right around Thanksgiving one year, and I said, hey, guys, we're, we're taking a trip over the mountain. It's like, what's going on? Uh, sure enough, we end up going to uh, the Berkshires to pick up. Back then, it was the Ragged Mountain Rum, but it was the unaged version because it was literally right when Chris was starting out. Uh, and I was hooked even then. <laughs> so after years of working in hospitality, working in amazing uh, Relay and Chateau, Forbes Five Star Hotels, uh, becoming a certified sommelier, I kind of came full circle. Uh, and one of the first... Uh, beverages that I tasted, which was that Ragged Mountain Rum I now get to sell and talk about, which is awesome. Great. So you're based in Massachusetts. Um, how do you 
interact with other markets and you know give me a little bit about the your the day in the life of of a national sales director <laughs> there is no day in a life because every day is completely different uh one day you'll be you know starting your morning off with a, a call with one of your distributors going over you know numbers for the state uh and game plans later on you'll get a call from one of your your local restaurants saying hey you know we had a bit of a trouble with one of our deliveries or we just broke a case we have a big event going on tonight we're going to need more bourbon and you're the guy to put it in your truck and drive it there uh it's it's everything in between, and it's a ton of fun. That's great, man. Well, welcome to the show. And can I add a couple things about Michael since he didn't pony up and talk about it? <laughs> great, you you roll with it, Chris. Yeah, so I'll roll with it. So, um, you know, he uh, he brings to the table a whole lot of experience. He's a, a certified psalm, but also has an, uh, in-depth knowledge of spirits. And the thing I like about him is he also has a huge appreciation for uh, food and, and the and the sort of the whole process of, of how food gets onto the plate. So to me, it's a really wonderful amalgamation of everything that we need here. So the, his hospitality background really, um, I think, has been helpful. And, and uh, he's you know, still fairly new here at BMD, but uh, he's been doing great stuff and um it brings a different level that we really haven't had before here, and it's so it's nice to have that experience on board. Oh, that's sweet of you, Chris. No, you guys have a good working relationship, I'm sure. Mike wrote um, back the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems that like so well, we're we're, uh, we're going to have Nick from Long Trail come on, but while we wait for him, let's just keep chatting about this. Um, it seems that m many more, whether they're distilleries or breweries or a combination of both are realizing that a big part of the game is like adding hospitality or food or other components uh, to their business besides just making beer or, or whiskey. Um, Chris, at what you've been doing this a while. What, what have been some of the growth just as a concept that you've gone through at Berkshire Mountain? And, and how did you end up deciding that Michael was the right, the right person for you? Man, those are two two different, a lot of water under the bridge in between those two. So I think, you know, at BMD, uh, I started it in my barn at my farm for seven years. So we didn't have a retail presence. Uh, I didn't want people driving up the driveway at midnight on Saturday, like, dude, the liquor store is closed. I need a bottle of booze. So we never were open and we never had that opportunity to sort of build the brand one person at a time at the distillery. Um, and so I, I had a very different model than most craft distillers do. You know, I started with about 50 of us in the country. Now they're about 2,500. And most of them probably make their living through their retail stores, which was sort of somewhat the antithesis of how Fortunate Distillers started. Um, so I had distribution in the beginning, got into a whole bunch of states. And then about eight years ago, built a distillery in Sheffield. We have a tasting room here. Uh, we now have cannabis sales in Massachusetts. There's a lot of cannabisism that brings people by. And then just with COVID, we're sort of equidistant Boston and um, New York. So there's a lot of people that have moved to the Berkshires. It's a beautiful you know, community, uh, wonderful natural landscape. Um, and so we've really, you know, we just put in a pavilion. We're putting in a pergola this summer, a big one, so we can have outdoor cocktails. We there's an organization called Berkshire Busk, 
that um, has outdoor music in Great Barrington, which is a town about three miles north of us. And so we're going to have a, a bus offsite every Saturday of the summer. So we'll have live music of the story, which is new to us. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of been the journey of BMD. And then in terms of um, picking Michael, he just had a lot of, you know, as I just mentioned, um, a lot of interests that are relevant to the industry that are sort of above and beyond um, what you might want for a hospitality director and director of sales. So he had a sort of innate uh, desire to learn more and love of food and production and spirits and, and wine as well. So um, it's nice to find, you know, somebody who's well-rounded and versed and can speak eloquently and, um, about your products. That's great. Hey, um, let's go to Nick. Nick Smith. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I dropped out for a second, but I'm back. Um, I'm doing well. Great. So let's talk. I'd like to just hear about a little bit how you got started in the industry. I know you're up in Vermont. I got started in the industry through uh, washing dishes and brew pubs and, um, you know, made it through the, the cooking line, but um, found that, uh, you know, there was a good head brewer that said, you want to do something where you need two or three people and you get to wake up early and have baker's hours. And he turned me on to brewing and I've been doing that for 15 plus years. Um, I did a little in Arizona and now I'm in, uh, I'm in Vermont and I've been with the, the same company um, brewing beers at all hours of the day. So you, you guys are Long Trail and Otter Creek and, and the Shed and I, I've got a lot of good memories of, of you guys going back to early days of craft beer and in New York City. Um, let's jump to this project. You know, what, what's it like working on a distillery project? Were you doing anything different with your beer? Just walk us through, you know, your guys' role in, in making one of these whiskeys. Chris, you tell us what Long Trail does. Sure. So, um... You know, in the beginning, I think uh, there's a camaraderie that's involved in this collaboration that's uh, really fun. Um, there are some very well-established whiskey brands that have been making whiskey for over a century, and they've put out, you know, two whiskeys in 100 plus years. But I think there's a uh, different expectation in the craft realm where, uh, in the beer and the whiskey uh, producers realm, where people are expecting new things to be released fairly regularly. So it's hard to stay relevant in the industry. Um, and then when there's such rich fodder uh, in New England with so many wonderful craft breweries, uh, it seems to make perfect sense to me to sort of collaborate with them, stand on their shoulders and, and use their wonderful beers that they've perfected um, making uh, as a base for a whiskey. So, you know, there are certainly some technical difficulties with distilling beer. Um, tends to be a little bit more carbonated. You have to work with that. It's a little trickier on the still setup. Uh, and then there's some issues with hops and bitterness that we've figured out to work around. But, you know, essentially, uh, it was a pitch of, hey, we've got this really cool project we're doing. We'd love to partner with you guys. And this is what we need. Uh, mixed back. So yeah. we would have all these different brewers and we ended up 
buying the beer from them, it needs to go through our distribution channels because it's a spirit, not a beer. Um, and I think that the great thing is that the marketing behind it has been wonderful. So we've done a great job, uh, not me personally, but um, my marketing team has done a great job getting it out there, um, as have the breweries. And the brewery, the labels are pretty cool because they have a lot of art from the brewers themselves on it. So it's very easy to recognize. Um, and for us, you know, in the store, when we sell it, it's a hand sell and the story gets told to every bottle, to every person that buys the bottle. Here. So um, I think it's, it's been a win-win situation. Yeah. Hey, and Nick, let's get you on. So uh, you mentioned that before you had said you'd, you'd started washing dishes in Lawrence, Kansas, and you worked your way up. Um, so yeah, t just tell us about some of the beers you've been working on. Um, I've made a variety of stouts for um, for Long Trail and our and our sister companies, and um, all in all, my favorite style of beer to make is stout. Um, it's 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 a little bit difficult. It's has it can have very few ingredients. It can have way too many ingredients. Um, this particular one, the the unearthed. Um, I got to make that one at the Long Trail plant. And I mean, if you're talking about generally bourbon and whiskey and you're talking single malt, this stout is definitely not a single malt. They take that, um, that two row barley and there's just about every type of caramel, crystal, burnt, roasted malt that these brewers can throw at it is all in that stout. I really like making simple stouts, but you know, I'm, I'm a brewer. You give me the recipe, that's, I'll work with it and that's what you get. This one has um, 10 different, 10 different roasts of barley malt and just one beer, um, which I think is great. If you can pick out each and every one of those. Wow, so the, the this, so you made, the whiskey was made from the stout. Yeah, that one, the, the unearthed. It was. So I, I think I'm going to have an egg on my face on this question because I'm, I'm afraid I know the answer to it. Um, Jimmy or Nick, have, have you guys uh, actually seen a bottle of this or, or had the opportunity to taste the whiskey yet? There is a bottle setting in the Long Trail pub on top shelf that is um, nobody's touching. Um, basically. Oh, you guys came down and got some, right? Yeah, yeah. I currently, um, I've, I've, there's, there's two different brew house locations. We got one in Bridgewater Corners and one in Middlebury. I'm currently working in Middlebury, and I mean, this, you releasing this was a total surprise to me because I remember making the beer, and then one day they're like. Oh, it's it's finished. They're like, it's finished. They're like, yeah. yeah, they're releasing it. <laughs> um, we had a very one day five years later. A very similar <laughs> with um, with the Otter Creek brand. Um, we did one with some local distillers where I did. Um, it was a fest beer. I did an Oktoberfest, and I remember making the beer. We didn't even ferment it. We just shipped it straight out the door they took it in large totes and did their own fermentation and then three years later it was like 
it ought to be about time. And, and then that one showed up. Um, so I have not yet tasted unearthed as a spirit, but I get lots of promises that, that I'm going to be the first one. Yeah. I think two cases made it up that way. And, and it's actually, a, a, I had some last week and it's really tremendous whiskey. Um, yeah. And Jimmy, did you get to try it yet? You know, I, I have not tasted them. I don't think I, I got any of them. Wow. I think the last show we, we had with you, Chris, uh, we had two brewers on and we were talking about more about the process and, you know, the, the end product, you know, what you tasted and, uh, what what elements of the yeah the beer came through and you mentioned that as the genetics of the beer um how does that work you know it's what, what does a hoppy beer taste like when it's distilled you know <laughs> bitter well, bitter yeah so uh which is one of the things that we've had to figure out how to work with the the interesting thing is that if you ferment a beer or a wine or uh, a sake the, depending on the yeast you use and your raw materials and your fermentation temperatures, you know, you get a whole myriad of compounds, not just ethanol. So you get these amyl and butyl alcohols and fusel oils and esters and, you know, aldehydes and all these different things that um, in unconcentrated amounts add to the, the character of the beer or the wine. So think, you know, banana on a half beer. Um, but when you distill them, they can get concentrated to the point where some of those may not be palatable, but fortunately for distilling, you know, they all have different volatilities or boiling points. So through the distillation process, we can take out parts of those compounds, but um, it's definitely the genetics of the beer are in there and you can certainly taste the whiskey that was made by you know, made from a beer that had a bunch of different malts in it from one that was much lighter and didn't have roasted malts. And, you know, so that beer, the composition translates through into that spirit and even holds true after, in this case, five years in the barrel. Yeah. Can I ask Michael? Michael, just as an expert, um, if you're tasting a whiskey that's made from, let's say, roasted malts, as Nick said, how does that come through in the whiskey? Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing to watch. I mean, if you get super nerdy about it and you start talking about things like the Maillard reaction, which is what happens to those sugars at those different roast levels, like that alone is a game changer in terms of your fermentation. Uh, then you add something like hops that break down uh, over time. I mean, that's part of why brewers uh, pitch hops during different parts of their boil, because uh, they're basically taking down some of those original oils and breaking them down bit by bit. Uh, so the timing is really like, oh, they really like the hop characteristic broken down at that exact rate. Uh, and it really does come through uh, in the finished product. Like Chris said, you're basically taking all of those little bits and pieces that happen from, you know, a unique yeast strain that has these really nice, gorgeous, like esters and ethers and byproducts, uh, these cool malt levels that, you know, at those different roasts, some of that earthiness kind of comes through a little bit more. Uh, and you're basically just cranking everything to 11 in the distillation process. Um, so I'm sure for a lot of these brewers, it's been an amazing uh, kind of revelation for them to really be able to taste some more of the bits and pieces. Uh, because again, you're just 
and dialing everything up to 11 in the distillation and concentrating all those flavors. Hey, for the record, this whiskey does to 11. It really does. <laughs> uh, I'm lucky enough to have a bottle of it right next to me. Good. I, I think looking looking at the recipe with um, roasted barley and black malt, you know, traditionally for stouts, um, if any, you, you sure you guys have gotten a handful of black malt before. And I mean, it is burnt to a crisp. There's, um, these aren't contributing a whole lot of sugars to the fermentation, but they put in a lot of nice carbon. And I can, I can only imagine if you take, if you take, those aromas and flavors and you know concentrate them how they could come through and you know never to forget chocolate malt it's it's really amazing when when you, when you name when you name a malt a level on a, a roast on a malt chocolate it's like okay those are the qualities i expect are going to come out of it chris uh, af after all this now were there any whiskeys that came out that surprised you uh, you know, there were um, a couple that were more sort of Saison types that had some unique yeast strains and malt composition that came out beautifully floral and not bitter. So that was a, a pleasant surprise. We, we toned down the IBUs a bit on these, but there are a couple that came out pretty floral um, and maybe a little bit different than you'd expect them too, especially after that long in the barrel. Um, I don't, I, yeah, so I, I think that in, in general, um, I hate to say it, but there's really not a whiskey in the group that I didn't think was a great whiskey. And I think part of that is that you can certainly make a bad spirit from a good base, but uh, it, it certainly helps to have a wonderful beer to start with and as long as we don't botch our end of the bargain and you know we make the right cuts after distillation and put a good base spirit or raw spirit in a barrel um i think we've had a pretty good success rate of uh, that spirit coming out as a nice whiskey and i have to step in and toot chris's horn here uh because he retrofitted uh the still that we have to really hone esters and ethers and aromatics because we initially thought he initially thought it was going to be a rum house uh, and it has lent itself so well uh, to these beers because again half of a beer is in that lacy head it's in all of those aromatics that you pull off because your sense of smell is seven to ten times stronger than your sense of taste uh, and the way he designed the still the way he makes his cuts make all of these beer whiskeys so beautiful and so aromatic. It you, you can keep on sniffing and sniffing, and you'll pick up something new every single time. So, are you saying, Michael, that that m not every still is is meant to be distilling beer like this? I'm going to go out on a limb and say <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know the actual answer to this, but if I would have to guess, it would probably be you know, harder depending on the shape of the still that you have and everything else. So I think it's really a confluence of a lot of, you know, <laughs> maybe call it half luck, half talent, uh, and then just being in the right place in the right time with the right still. There, there's a lot of lore in still making and stills to the point where somebody produced a great, sorry, I have a, a local train going by now. Um, 
where somebody, you know, produces a wonderful whiskey after they ding their still and drop something on it and had a dent and they don't take the dent out because they feel like it helped them produce a finer whiskey. So for us, I think one of the nicest things about our still um, is also a curse in that it is only a third of the way jacketed. So it's slow and it takes us longer than a lot of other stills to distill a product. So um, we lose some time, but I think the benefit is that it's much gentler on the product in the, uh, in the kettle and the still, and it allows us time to sort of really sort through the cuts along the way. Um, and it just seems to, by analogy, and it's a beautiful gin still as well, as that it sort of allows our gins to taste like they're steamed versus boiled and how I think of broccoli. So we end up with a really nice clean, clean product at the end. Wow. Chris, as a distiller, so with this project, d d is this helping you figure out like your ideal um, base? I'm, I'm sure you learned a lot from doing it. Yeah, we actually have poached all these recipes from the brewers and we're making 12 new recipes now. No, it's, um, look, for me, a lot of the fun and a lot of the marketing potential is the collaboration. So we do, we have some single malts we've distilled, we've played around with some roasted malts. Um, we have a core line that we just try and keep in stock, which isn't always easy. And to be able to really um, work with such great brewers and get, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I know I did about 50 recipes where I found a gin I liked, and, and that was Greylock. And my assumption is that these brewers spent a lot of time with, you know, working out the nuances of their um, grain bills for their beers. And so it's been, for me, it's just been nice to be able to make some great spirits from some wonderful beers. And, um, but that being said, we definitely, have learned a lot about distilling beer and the different grain bases with it. And I don't have, uh, for the record, we don't have the recipes of the, of the grain bills, the mash bills for all these beers. So um, we have we can speak in generalities. Yeah. Hey, we're, Michael, we're going to jump over to um, some of the hospitality. So I just noticed that the other day you had a tasting with, with some of the whiskeys in Hadley, Massachusetts. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so you know the the fun part about my job is basically finding ways to help people experience the spirits, uh, and in this case, it was uh, somebody that owned a retail shop that also does uh, some local charity work and has an organization around tasting whiskey, uh, and he had been trying to get uh, us to come in and show, especially these beer whiskeys, off, uh, and I had the chance to basically walk them through uh, the current releases. So we walked through about eight of those 12 beer whiskeys, uh, tasted them, compared, contrasted them, uh, had some really fun discussions about, you know, what people were picking out, uh, and just really, you know, had a good time exploring. So could you walk us through that? Not the whole tasting, but uh, <laughs> perhaps the, 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 at least a few of the whiskeys that you tasted. Yeah, sure. That, I, that means, that means they're still out there, right? It means absolutely. I, I, I could still probably buy some. You know, they're, they are moving quite quickly, uh, which is <laughs> not a bad problem to have. Uh, so depending on, you know, your local retailers, don't hesitate to ask. And, you know, worst thing they say is, no, we're out. Uh, but 
for me, you start with talking about the beer itself. Uh, and again, fortunately for me, I have a working knowledge of beer, uh, the different styles. Uh, and so again, with the unearth, knowing that it's a, in this case, I believe a barrel aged stout adds even more complexity to the mix. Cause you take all of these beautiful malts. Again, Nick mentioned 10 different roast levels on the, on the barley. Uh, so you have the whole gamut of flavors that you can extract from that grain. Then you're taking that beer, putting it into a bourbon barrel where it oxidizes, it changes, it pulls some of the bourbon out of the wood, it pulls some of the wood characteristic out, and then you take that beer and you distill it. <laughs> so to kind of walk people through that process and have them really you know, understand the beer making process and then the distilling process uh, and having them really be able to appreciate it that much more, but in layman's terms, is kind of what I do on a regular basis. That's great. And can you, can you mention a few of the breweries that, that you, the whiskeys that you tasted uh, the other night? Yeah, we went through the gamut. So we did the Sam Adams Boston Lager. We did the Two Roads Workman's Comp. We did the Unearthed uh, by Long Trail. Uh, we also tasted the UFO Hefeweizen, uh, which for me is just ridiculous. Uh, it's one of the ones I like putting in front of my sommelier friends and messing with their heads. Uh, and the Spencer uh, Trappist Ale. Oh, and of course, the Berkshire Shine. A Hefeweizen. Okay. Distilled Hefeweizen. Yes. What What about it? What, what did it taste like? What blew your friends away? Well, you go back to, Chris mentioned yeast creating kind of different byproducts at different fermentation temperatures. Hefeweizens are always slightly hotter uh, fermentations. And once you get your yeast above, you know, probably 76, 77 degrees Fahrenheit for the fermentation, it creates this byproduct isoamyl acetate. Uh, it's basically... In the sommelier word, we say, hey, it's banana runts. Just think of banana runts, and if you smell banana runts or like that bubblegummy characteristic, uh, you probably have a, a high temperature fermentation. Uh, and that comes out in spades. But also when you talk about the UFO white, uh, they do add coriander and orange peel to the beer. So you're taking these beautiful oils off the coriander, these beautiful or oils off the orange peel, and folding it into that beer and kind of amplifying it as well. Uh, and you go back to Chris's mention of the fact that, you know, it's a really great gin still as well that we have. It's very gentle with all those oils, so it doesn't break them down. You really just extract all this gorgeous fruit flavor uh, as well as the flavor from the malt. Chris, when, in, in this process, going back, whatever, six, five, six years ago, um, once you selected the brewery to work with, did they pick the beer that they wanted to distill? Uh, I think it was more of a joint effort. So part of it was based on, you know, as, as Michael just said, that it's wonderful to go to these events and you talk people through the beer and you talk about the beer first. So for us, there's an educational slash marketing opportunity here. Um, so we, um, we would pick the, sorry, I lost train of thought. Your Latin question was... Uh how each brewery picked the beer, oh, okay, the beer. for the whiskey right. project. I haven't something even shiny just flew by, Chris. Yeah, we, so, we, we all need us. We all need something right now, bro. So, all right, let me take take seven. The um, you know, I think that as I mentioned, the first experiment we did experiment we did was with a bunch of Sam Adams beers. So we, I think we ended up with seven. We distilled them. We picked two that we made into a whiskey. 
that was a huge learning experience. A lot of those beers were super cold. They hold the you know, CO2 well, you know, release it when it heats up. Um, but that also gave us an idea of what translates over in the distillate. Um, and then we uh, started distilling some other beers to play with. And when we did this project, we sort of based, you know, our wants and desires um, off of our past experience in terms of picking a beer. But then also, you know, it makes sense to run a beer that the brewery um, has the capacity to make and also that um, oftentimes might be a flagship beer for that brewery because there is, you know, as we said, a big marketing component to it as well. So uh, distillable beer and uh, brand recognition, I would say, were the two driving factors. And it was, yeah, it was not a unilateral um, decision. We actually had some field trips and went around to some different breweries and uh, tasted through a bunch of their beers and you know, settled on one. That's great. And just uh, since we do drink beer on the show or whiskey, I'm drinking right now from Exhibit A Brewing. Thanks for sending me some some beers uh, from uh, Framingham, Mass. I'm drinking the Goody Two Shoes Kolsch. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Uh, support us and to become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Wow, we've been talking about the Craft Brewers Whiskey Project with Chris and Michael from uh, Berkshire Mountain Distillers. And uh, we had Nick, one of the brewers uh, from Long Trail in Vermont, on. Um, he, he should be joining us. He's got some internet connection up in the Netherlands called... Uh, Vermont. So, um, Chris, uh, you've been doing some great projects. I remember, I think the first whiskey I had of yours was the corn, um, just your corn whiskey. Nick's back. Uh, what's a base for corn whiskey? If we're talking about beers and, and, and this distillate bases, what's your base when you make corn whiskey? For, uh, you wouldn't believe this, but it's corn. So, um, and our <laughs> corn whiskey is about 90% corn and then uh, about 10% barley. And the barley adds, you know, a little sweetness. It acts as a slicker during the 
fermentation process, some of it's malted. Um, but I think the interesting about our corn thing about our corn whiskey, A, we use local corn, which is great. Uh, a bunch of wonderful cornfields around us in the Berkshires. And the nice thing is that a lot of the bigger ones are in land trust, so they'll stay as beautiful vistas. Um, but it's been aging on white oak and cherry, so a combination of those two woods, about 70% white oak and 30% cherry, that uh, we cut, mill, and char on my farm. So it's a local wood as well, which has been fun. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's kind of one of the more bold uh, whiskeys we make. Um, what I would say is it's a little bit dirtier, so we don't take as many cuts on it, or we keep a little bit more of the heads and the tails in the distillate before it ages than some of our other whiskeys. And consequently, um, you know, if I'm going to make a, a drink that I'm mixing it and it needs to hold up to a sour mix or something like that, I prefer the corn over a bourbon. If I'm going to drink the two meat, I'd probably switch to the bourbon. Yeah, I was going to say that corn is phenomenal. It's it's my secret weapon when I'm developing cocktails for uh, people's uh, cocktail programs because it's so rich. You get this beautiful actual like corn husk flavor on it because like Chris said, he kind of keeps it a little dirty with the cuts and it just adds so much richness. It's I call it the the New England version of a Japanese whiskey because it's perfect for highballs. Uh, it's just got a lot of complexity and all you need is just a little something something mixed with it. Awesome. You guys are on something. Let's just go to Nick since we have him. Nick, I just since this this craft brewers whiskey project is kind of a collaboration. You you want to mention uh, one or two beer collaborations you've been part of at, at Long Trail? Yeah, um, collaborations are great because when you're spending so much time focusing on production, it's nice to have somebody just walk in and say you know what, we could probably do it this way. And that would work too. Um, I've collaborated with um, Jack's Abbey. I've collaborated with Sean Lawson. Um, we've done multiple special projects. Um, one special project that is on my mind right now, after listening to Chris and Michael talk, is I have four oak casks sitting behind my desk that are all full of Baltic Porter that got held up because of the pandemic and they've been sitting there for two years. And so as a recent collaboration um, for a local beer fest, we collaborated with Otter Creek Brewing and Long Trail Brewing, as in I, I took beer from those casks, blended it with an active beer that we were fermenting um, to kick things up and served it as just, it was a, uh, 12% Baltic Porter, blended rum barrel, blended with um, Willet bourbon barrel. And it knocked the socks off of our customers. Everybody that was at the festival started making a line to our tent, asking for <laughs> basically flat two to three-year-old beer that had been oxidizing and just picking up all of those flavors of um, vanilla and such. Um, collaborations and special projects are, are where it's at. Just like even, even thinking about with, you know, with this project, um, if you can talk brewers into handing over their wart before 
they actually ferment it before that CO2 pickup gets in there. Wow, that's great, Nick. Hey, back back to Michael. Michael, you just you're talking about this corn whiskey. So we're getting on to something. We always try to find a a beer or an ingredient that's that's regional that that could take off like in New York. I know we've got the Empire Rye Whiskey project. So you're really big on the the corn whiskey from Berkshire Mountain. Yeah, I am. And you know, it's for me it's mind-boggling to be working for a portfolio where, you know, Chris was being very kind but very accurate when he said there's not a single one of our products that I dislike. It's just really quality all the way around and we actually have a phenomenal rye uh, that has been uh, killing things in cocktails, and we just actually did a a, a special barreling uh, for a really nice hotel out in Boston that's going to be released. Uh, so we get to do all these fun little like single barrel projects as well. Is so that's a lot. Is that a larger part of your jobs? So your sales and hospitality? Is this developing s- s- special bottles or barrels for? a hotel or what tell us about that project that sounds very interesting yeah it's it's a little bit of everything uh you know i i have seen almost every job uh when it comes to being in a restaurant and being in a hotel uh i've you know my father started me as a dishwasher i've worked saute and i've worked almost every position the front of house as well so i can walk into a retail store and say hey you know how can we help you uh, what gaps do you have in your portfolio? Is your gin game weak? Oh, we've got two, three gins that we could put right on yourself now uh, and elevate your gin portfolio because it's a local product. Uh, and I mean, you know, when you can say your gin has won like number one craft gin in the country, according to the New York Times, the retail store's person ears picks up. Uh, or I can walk into a restaurant and say, hey, you know, what, what are some of your cocktails that sell really well? Uh, and, you know, they'll maybe throw out a vodka cocktail or they'll throw out a rum cocktail. And then I can say, oh, you're using X rum. That's at X price point. Our rum is X dollars less than that uh, and start the conversation that way. Uh, or I can come in and say, hey, you guys already obviously know what you're doing or you guys are just starting up. Let me come in and let me refresh your bartenders on, you know, just spirits 101 you know what is vodka how is it made what is gin how is it made uh so that those bartenders have a better understanding of our product so they can make better cocktails with it uh so i i basically just play an angle game like how can i help you the most or how can you guys see the most return on what i do for you uh, you're you're an asset mike back to nick nick um as a brewer have you had other uh beers that the whiskeys that were distilled from beer and have you ever had them side by side before this um we did a project with mad river distilling here in vermont um whereas i i produced um a full batch of beer um an oktoberfest that was already in our on our brand and instead of sending it to fermentation at our place um we filled up uh, they're 250-gallon totes, and Med River took off with them and added enzymes and did this distillation themselves. And I did get to taste it. Again, it was one of those things where patience, a brewer's patience, you know, we can get we can get a batch every two weeks, another batch turns out. Um, after two years, I did get the the hop hop scotch, I think was the the name of the project. 
I got my bottle of hopscotch and I happen to have been brewing Oktoberfest again, um, which is always a good sign if you can make the same beer year after year. And I was able to compare them. And to say the least, it was interesting. Um, we took it, we took it, we have on-site lab and we took it into our lab and we just basically picked out the, the different um, malt characters. And we we're so happy that we had chosen um, a malt forward beer rather than a hop forward beer. Um, I tried a, a couple of the other more hop forward beers in the, in the project. And I mean, they were interesting, but still that, that bitterness um, kind of threw me off a little bit. Yeah. Hey, Chris, for a future project, Nick mentioned just just taking the wart from a brewery. So we, um, you know, we're not, most brewers tend to have more storage space than distillers do. I mean, a lot of them ferment at cooler temperatures for longer amounts of time. So when we started this project, you know, six and a half years ago, we were pretty short on fermentation space. We've since added some bigger fermenters. So at the moment, um, it was nice to be able to get beer that was already fermented that we could throw right into the still and get at it. Um, so it's part of it's a storage issue for us that makes it easier to have it fermented offsite. No, that's a good point. I'd, I'd like to throw in, it's, it's more enjoyable to try to distill some alcohol rather than a bunch of vinegar because um, just because for poor fermentation. <laughs> Nick, I, w I would love to sit through a tasting with you one day. Uh, that that would be on my list, I promise you. Um, what is it like for, for you guys as brewers? H how much tasting and, and uh, kind of like sensory analysis are, are you doing in your brewing? Michael, I'll ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... I I've been fortunate enough to to brew in an industrial setting as well. And it's super important to continue to taste. And, you know, especially if you have batch to batch, uh, you want to taste those batches side by side to make sure you're being consistent. Because the same way in restaurants, uh, they say the number one key is consistency to be able to produce that same thing again. And Nick alluded to it before. Um, and Chris is insanely diligent uh, about his tasting. I mean, there is not a single thing that comes off of that still that Chris does not taste uh, the fractionalized cuts when we start to move between our heads and our hearts or our hearts and our tails. Uh, and we're very specific about, you know, not just like, oh, well, we always do, you know, cuts one, two, and three. Doesn't matter. Throw that out of the window, taste every single cut, decide whether it needs to be in there or not. Yeah. There, there are there are a bunch of different programs out there. They're, they're, uh, the brewers typically have these wheels that help you sort of verbalize what you're tasting and, and log it down for the record. There's some computer programs on it. In the early days, we would send uh, samples out for uh, analysis at, at, at labs. Um, and then, you know, with time, um, you just kind of get a gestalt of a sense of where you want to be. And, and so when we, as Michael mentioned, when we taste through all those cuts, um, assuming things went well, which they typically do, we're pretty consistent on what we keep and what we don't keep. And there's only been a couple times in the 15 years everyone, whoa, uh, okay, maybe more than a couple times, but not a lot of times, but like, whoa, that is not 
the same as what we made last month. And so then we either have to toss it or if it's something interesting, we might uh, redistill it and play with it and make something new. That's great. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie. I've, I've become a better taster because I've tasted with Chris. And I was okay to begin with because uh, uh, I was trained as a sommelier. And part of becoming a certified sommelier is actually running through what they call the grid and learning to assess uh, things that you're tasting kind of right there and on the fly. Uh, there are like five points you have to kind of cover on the, the appearance of whatever you're drinking. You have to pick out fruit characteristics and non-fruit characteristics of what you're smelling. And then you have to do the same thing in taste. Uh, and doing this with spirits, with Chris, especially with the cuts, has really helped me understand his products so much better and to be able to kind of translate that to uh, restaurateurs and to retail people. Well, that's great. Hey, Chris, um, before we wrap it up, you said you have a charity project in the works. Yeah, so uh, no pun intended, a blended charity project. So <laughs> we, um, you know, part of this is a little technical, but when we distill beer from the mass brewers, right? So we had... You mean six, Ma Massachusetts? Correct. So we had okay. six of them. We had Mass Bay Brewing, which is, you know, people think of Harpoon. Um, we had Spencer Brewery, Big Elm, Sam Adams, Jack's Abbey, and Virtual Brewing Company. And individually, you distill the beer, and then we would make those cuts that we're talking about, you know, the heads and tails cuts. Um, and individually, there really wasn't enough of the heads and tails to work with, but as a uh, cumulatively, we ended up with, I don't remember what it was, but maybe a couple thousand gallons of heads and tails cuts that you know, our still, when we make whiskey, uh, we run it essentially as a pot still, so it doesn't fractionate super cleanly like a column still would. Um, so there's what's called reflux that goes up and down in the column, or not in the column, but in the in the knockdown chamber, um, and then down through the condenser. So you end up with, you know, some hearts in your heads and some hearts in your tails. And when you redistill that, when we redistilled that 2,000 gallons of heads and tails, we ended up with, I think it was 200 gallons of barrel whiskey that um, we had all the mass brewers sign off on that they would be okay with that. And so we have, I think it's four barrels of whiskey that's you know, compounded from six Massachusetts brewers. And the idea is that we'll do a bunch of charity events with it. We'll sell it in the store, but we'll also do a bunch of charity events um, and that was sort of the idea when this project was supposed to be released, that we do a bunch of on-premise events and dinners that you could taste the whiskey and also have a beer um, poured next to it and taste the two together. But COVID certainly threw a wrench in those works. Um, but we're hoping by the time that we barrel up uh, this, I don't know what we're going to call it, this amalgamation beer, this, you know, combination beer that uh, we'll be able to do one of those events. Great. And, and Michael, you're the sales and hospitality guy. What is there one more point that we didn't cover? I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you have to learn to talk about these, these items. Uh, there are some people that look at you like you're crazy when you say, no, 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 it's, it's the spirit of the beer. And it's finding ways to, you know, kind of find those two or three word phrases that really help the 
you know, either the retail shop owner or the sommelier or the beverage director understand what it is you're doing to really appreciate it. So one of the phrases I use a lot is, it's the spirit of the beer. And they will, what do you mean? Literally, figuratively, it's the spirit made from the beer. Because everybody thinks, oh, well, you're just doing a barrel aging or just doing that. Uh, and as far as I know, uh, Chris is really the only one that's done it in, in this massive of a, of a scope. Uh, and people are still trying to wrap their heads around it. So for me, I, I get to introduce people to something truly new every time I taste them on it. I, I have a little stash of a couple, uh, Hidachino from Japan and Uriga from, from Germany. Uh, yeah. they, I do have some beer distillates. Yeah, and beer I, I let you know they were very, well, they were just, they were fine spirits. They're very expensive when I got them wholesale. And I, I still have them and nip on them every once in a while. But um, there, there is a nice culture there. And, and I was going to ask Nick before, my first thought, I think years ago, I love craft beer so much. I thought if I had a full liquor license, I just wanted to to sit and sip um, a good whiskey next to it. And everyone was talking about, oh, you could get a a, a whiskey that's made from the beer. And uh, this is probably the first time that I've I've come close to to talking about it. So it's been really exciting. And um, Chris, I definitely got to come out and visit you guys out in Sheffield, Massachusetts, and Nick as well. I got to go up to Vermont to Long Trail and Otter Creek. So just want to thank you guys so much for joining me, taking the time, talking about your, your craft brewers whiskey project. Um, so thanks to Chris, Nick, and Michael for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to Armin, our engineer, and Alex, our producing intern. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo, thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.